You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Nicola Sturgeon steps down as Scotland's first minister, ending the contradictory career of an effective politician who never quite got what she really wanted. Increasing numbers of Americans resign themselves to the next presidential election being a rematch of the previous. And should our MPs smarten themselves up a bit? I'm Andrew Miller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Sarah Churchwell and Vincent McAvenny will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus we'll hear from the head of the Olena Zelenska Foundation about the work Ukraine's First Lady is doing at home and abroad. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Sarah Churchwell, Professor of American Literature at London School of Advanced Study, and by the journalist Vincent McAvenny, a regular politics commentator for Monocle 24. Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Um, Sarah, first of all, you have recently, well reasonably recently, been visiting a literary festival in Bangladesh and you'll appreciate how seamlessly I'm going to tee this up. While you were there, did you mention that you have a book available? (laughs) I did, in fact. I was there to speak about uh, uh, my book that uh, recently came out, which is called The Wrath to Come and is about how uh, Gone with the Wind explains American politics now. Um, how did that go over at a literary festival in Bangladesh? Well, it went over surprisingly well. I mean, I was, it shouldn't surprise you or your listeners to hear a little bit careful about how I put a few things. Um, but I, um, you know, I, I also didn't uh, hold back my opinions ultimately. I just tried to be a little bit tactful about how I phrased them. But, <laughs> you know, so I was speaking out about patriarchy and speaking out about white supremacy. And, um, and, and by and large, the you know, there were a few maybe glares at the back of the room. But uh, but by and large, the audience, you know, seemed... Um, they were certainly listening and they were certainly interested. It was a really, really engaged audience. So it was the Dhaka Literary Festival, and I want to put in a little plug for them because they're lovely people. If people find themselves in Dhaka in January, they should go to the Literary Festival. Um, Vincent, you have not... There's no seamless gear change from <laughs> this really to the next. <laughs> while you have not Every been... Every time I come, I feel like I disappoint you with what yeah, I've been up to. <laughs> while, while you have not been to Bangladesh, you are going... To Paris for completely different reasons. Yeah, I entered the sort of ballot to, for entries uh, into the Paris Olympics. So next summer... Um, and when we allocate... say entries into the Paris Olympics, you, you will be attending <laughs> merely as a spectator. Yeah, as a spectator, yeah, to go. Because mind, I just... you, mind you, do Jersey send their own team? Or no, no regrettably, that's a No, shame. to the Commonwealth Games they do. Really? Uh, yeah. Have, yeah. Have you never put teams. your hand up for that? I, I mean, I no. would have thought that basically anybody who could be bothered could become an international athlete for Jersey I mean, at the I Commonwealth Games. I do know Games. one or two from childhood. I think yeah. the bar is slightly lower, but uh, <laughs> didn't didn't go for it myself. But no, and it, but I'm just excited because my happiest time in London was those two weeks of the Olympics because it was uh, just an amazing time in the city. The, 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 the I think. What a, and I remember the build-up, a lot of Olympians saying, like, you know, most people haven't been to a city when there's Olympics going on. They don't quite get it that it would be worth mm. all the kind of years of trouble and, you know, and, and debate and all the infrastructure. And it was just an electric time. And the Paralympics as well. It was just an absolutely brilliant time. And given, you know, what happened, sadly, to Tokyo with that basically behind-closed-doors Olympics, I think it would be just really great to have an Olympics mm. in a really, uh, you know, fun city that's fully open. We're not going to be 
touch wood in COVID again. I think Paris want, has something to prove as well. You know, it lost out to getting it in 2012 mm-hmm. when London got it. And I think some of their plans are quite exciting. The opening ceremony, instead of going to be ticketed in a stadium, is going to be on the Seine. It's going to be a flotilla um, and it's going to be a sort of city-wide party. So I think it's going to be a really great Olympics. Well, Sarah and Vincent, we will have more from both of you shortly. But first of all, to the fruits of an investigation by an international consortium of journalists into the works of a team of furtive Israeli contractors who claim to be prolific meddlers and disinformation peddlers in elections all over the world. I'm joined now by Dr. Manisha Ganguly, the investigations correspondent at The Guardian, who worked on this project. She joined me now, joins me now, rather. Um, Manisha, first of all, what can you tell us about uh, this character at the heart of the story, the alleged ringleader uh, Tal Hanan? So Tal Hanan has gone by the alias Jorge for more than a decade. He's been operating since 1999, but no one has been able to uncover his real identity. Uh, we've been able to confirm that his name is Tal Hanan, and he's a 50-year-old former Israeli special forces operative, and he appears to be working under the radar in elections in various countries for more than two decades. And how clear a picture were you able to get of what his outfit actually does uh, when it works on elections? This investigation was um, actually conducted by an international consortium of journalists uh, led by Forbidden Stories. And uh, as part of our investigation, we had three reporters from the marker, Haaretz, and Radio France go undercover, posing as clients who wanted to delay an election in an African country. So as a result, because we posed as clients, we were able to get their entire pitch when it comes to their operations around elections. And this ranged not just from sort of um, a disinformation bot army of more than 30,000 fake profiles pretending to be humans who were uh, pushing out false narratives on social media. But we were also able to see live that um, they have the capability to hack. In fact, in at least three of our recorded uh, Zoom calls with Tal Hanan and his team, we were given live demonstrations of them hacking into senior Kenyan politicians' Telegram accounts, Google um, Google Drives, including sort of critical polling information, Gmail accounts. And we were also sort of filled in on the way they operate when it comes to using this information that they've extracted through hacking for blackmail, sabotage, and even on-the-ground operations around elections. Was he able to point out, or did he at least boast of, any discernible real-world impact his operations had had on elections or on political processes? In the pitch, he boasted of being involved in at least 33 presidential elections around the world. Uh, we, In terms of his disinformation operations, we were able to track his influence campaigns online uh, to at least 20 countries um, 
sorry, 20 campaigns run on social media to more than 15 countries around the world. In one case, when we see him hack a Gmail account that he describes as, quote, the assistant of an important guy uh, in the general election in Kenya. What are you hoping will be the impact of this investigation? Is this potentially a, a warning to governments around the world that they do need to take this stuff more seriously than they are? I think it's a warning to governments around the world that they do need to take this information specifically around election time seriously and to investigate these influence campaigns, especially those who might have financed them and those who are contracted to conduct them. But also a warning to social media companies that this kind of disinformation operation is being conducted on their platforms and their efforts have not been substantive enough to crack down and boot out all the bots from their platform. Because if Tal Hanan is correct, um, and he does indeed have 30,000 bots on these um, social media platforms, and we've sort of identified 2,000, then we've just basically got the tip of the iceberg and they need to do better and find out where the rest of these bots are and what campaigns they've been involved in. Manisha Ganguly, thank you for joining us. Well, let's go back to our panel now, Sarah and Vincent, and to Scotland, where Chief Minister Nicola Sturgeon has announced that she will be standing down after eight years in the role. Though Sturgeon had lately appeared beleaguered on a number of fronts, she denied that the present brouhaha had prompted her decision, saying she had been pondering her exit for some while. So if this was just a question of my ability or my resilience to get through the latest period of pressure... I wouldn't be standing here today, but it's not. This decision comes from a deeper and longer term assessment. I know it might seem sudden, but I have been wrestling with it, albeit with oscillating levels of intensity for some weeks. Essentially, I've been trying to answer two questions. Is carrying on right for me? And more importantly, is me carrying on right for the country, for my party, and for the independence cause I have devoted my life to. I understand why some will automatically answer yes to that second question. But in truth, I have been having to work harder in recent times to convince myself that the answer to either of them, when examined deeply, is yes. And I've reached the difficult conclusion that it's not. Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's outgoing First Minister. Apologies for mistitling her in the introduction. Um, Vincent, first of all, it it is a contradiction, the legacy of Nicola Sturgeon. On the one hand, uh, obviously an extremely successful, effective politician, a tremendous political communicator, uh, yeah. as, as we just heard right there. I mean, her, her speech leaving was a masterclass and it felt weirdly refreshing. I thought I haven't seen a politician connect this much in so long and no, really explain themselves fully. She's good at that and, and extra points for using the phrase oscillating levels of intensity, just mm. dropping that in there. Um, but but how do we assess her legacy given that the one great cause to which she set herself, as she just said, uh, the independence of Scotland uh, eluded her? 
that cause was always going to be uh, an incredible challenge. And I think she was knocked a significant blow a few weeks ago when the Supreme Court says that she doesn't doesn't have, and Scotland doesn't have, a unilateral right to declare an Mm. independence referendum. And that really did set her back. Her then position was to try and turn the election, which will come in 2024, into a de facto referendum. But I think what we're seeing here is even though it is her overriding ambition, and she does claim that she has taken the cause further, uh, although Alex Salmond came out in a very petty, and I think what you call in Glasgow, a very wee man now, Alex Salmond. Alec, Alec, to, sorry, Alex Salmond, petty and vindictive. Indeed, the, the actual Alex Salmond. Who was, you know, who was sort of her, sort of, you know, she, uh, Nicola Sturgeon had her apprenticeship under Alex Salmond. He's the former first minister, but he's sort of fallen into quite uh, controversial status these days. He, um... When it came to when it, he said that she hadn't progressed the cause in recent years, but the polling does show that there is strength in the in the case. It's, she's never let the numbers really fall down significantly. Mm. They've just kind of, as she says, oscillated. But I think what we're seeing here is a global trend of leader burnout from the pandemic. If you think about Germany, uh, you, the United States, the UK, Australia, um, lots and lots of countries don't have the leaders that they actually had during the course of the pandemic because a lot of them have just simply as as she said both physically and mentally it drained her in Australia's case, wasn't so much burned out as thrown out, but uh, but, <laughs> True, but that's what I mean. There's a lot of them either as well. <laughs> burning out or crashing out. You know, similar. We heard this from Jacinda Ardern uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, indeed, so, uh, and we will come back to that point. But uh, Sarah, it, it, it is it, you know one of the eternal conundrums of history: do people make the times, or do the times make people? And Nicola Sturgeon has been such a dominant force in Scottish politics. The question is, how much of the SNP's current dominance of Scottish politics, and they hold 48 of the 59 Scottish seats at Westminster, how much of that is down to her personally? Because we will come shortly to the question of successes, but when you try to sort of name other great, big, robust, uh, charismatic personalities in the SNP... It's a bit of a reach. It is, isn't it? And I think that's going to be, the, you know, I, I would turn the question around and say that we're, we're going to get a really good indication of how strong support is for independence, mm. even without holding a referendum, when we see what the SNP numbers look like post-Sturgeon. And if they continue at those levels of support, then that will be a good indication that those, that, that, um, that those principles are there as well as it being um, Sturgeon's own political leadership. I think it's really hard not to, uh, at least, you know, um, apart from... The, where you stand on the question of, of Scottish independence, I think it's very difficult not to give Sturgeon a lot of credit for, for um, you know, a really, really um, competent level at, you know, a level of leadership, which may sound like damning with faint praise, but we but we live in a world of, of some, you know, pretty high level incompetent politics. And, you know, you, you mentioned the U.S. a second ago, Vincent, and, you know, and, and when we look, you know, compare, some, you know, kind of Trump's handling somebody like Sturgeon and, or again, you know, Jacinda Ardern and, and for me, I think it there you know what what marked her premiership was that sense that she was a that she was a safe pair of hands mm. um as I say, regardless of where you stood on on that central key issue for her that she was leading her country well and the the other thing for me, and you might want to come back to this, but is that um it's also we're seeing the the um it's not just the burnout from uh from the pandemic, which I agree with, but in particular that the uh the women who have the the main political leaders who have been 
and women are all falling by the wayside. And, um, and, and it, you know, this kind of generation of women are not surviving in leadership for very long. And, they're, and, and we're finding that people, you know, we're seeing with people like Jacinda Ardern and, and Nicholas Sturgeon that they're choosing to step back, but that they're with that you know the question of um, is 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 it all proving you know uh, um, difficult for women to to manage um, all of the pressures that are put on them now? I mean, and you know we'll have to see what happens. Uh, well, on the subject of what happens, Vincent, is there an obvious successor and an obvious successor who can find something else to say about Scottish independence which might move the cause further along? I don't think there is an obvious successor at all. There are names floating around, but there are deep divisions in this party, particularly mm. something that we've touched on previously uh, the, when it comes to trans rights and the legislation that's been passed, which looks like it's you know set to be blocked by the Westminster government. That has caused a fracture in her party. Uh, it's caused a fracture in Scottish politics as well. It's not, by the polling, what she's put through is not sort of overwhelmingly supported by the public or really understood by the public. It is. It does have support of other parties in Scotland, but it is a deeply personal thing. And I think that we're going to see over this campaign, because she's she's not g- going right now, she's going to stay until there's a replacement, and then she's going to be an MSP. She's not going to leave politics, mm. which I think is really interesting. She's only, as she said in her address, nearly 53. You know, she could be going out for a few years, but then could come back. Mm. Let's not forget, she might just decide that the situation now is something where she just needs a break. Um, because Part of part of her success is also that there there is no no rival or natural successor that has helped her keep in position for a long time, apart from being a very effective politician. Um, but as for you know, there's names like Angus Angstrogson floating around and uh, and others. But when you look at the field, there's no one that has her name recognition, her skill as a politician. And I've interviewed her several times. I've been to lots of events. I was up in Scotland for months covering the referendum. She has a natural knack with people in a way that few in this generation of politicians I've, I've been up close with really have uh, she's you know and and she's she's been doing it a long time part of what she said is you know she wants to know who Nicola Sturgeon is not just a politician she's been in frontline politics in Scotland since 2007 she you know when she got in this game Tony Blair was you know just about leaving Downing Street so she has and she has been the leader longest leader in, in Britain uh, since Tony Blair you know mm. she's eclipsed a lot of people um, so I am curious, though, with Jacinda Ardern as well. I think Jacinda Ardern, you kind of wanted, there's this sort of long-running rumour that, you know, the UN needs a first female secretary general. Mm. Maybe that's her destiny one day. With Nicola Sturgeon, she couldn't go for that because Britain has nukes, so you can't, you can't be secretary general unless Scotland got independence. But she could... It's interesting that she's going to stay and not maybe go off and do a big international job. I think she might be just keeping a hand in, having a break back in a few years. Well, moving seamlessly along on the subject of back in a few years to the United States, where at some reasonably imminent juncture, President Joe Biden is going to have to make it clear whether or not he intends to seek the Democratic Party's nomination for the 2024 election. Should Biden go round again, the US may see the first matchup between a current and former president since Grover Cleveland won his old job back from Benjamin Harrison in 1892. Donald Trump is one of just two Republicans 
Republicans who have officially flung their hats into the ring. Um, Sarah, speaking on behalf of your people, uh, <laughs> how excited are you for Biden-Trump too? <laughs> well, obviously the United States is famously incredibly united right now. And oh, so when I speak well, on behalf there's of... There's a clue in the name. Exactly. When I speak on behalf of all, you know, 360 million people, <laughs> well, speak as one voice and it's mine, um, clearly. Loves a sequel as you know, well. exactly. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's fair. Um, so, look, I think, you know, is is anybody excited about it? Of course not. But are, I mean, I don't think that anybody is excited about it. Um, but um, I think that it is a realistic um uh, kind of reckoning with where American politics is now. You know, we were just talking about whether Sturgeon has an obvious successor. Biden doesn't have an obvious successor now. He True. could he could step aside for Kamala Harris, which was, this certainly was, the, I think, the expectation that a lot of people had when um, when he entered. There are a lot of questions about why Kamala hasn't been put forward in the ways that I think some people expected her to be. People have different ideas about why that might be. One of them was actually that um, w- when they had such a narrow majority in in um, in the first term that uh, they actually needed her on the floor of the Senate passing votes. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the reason. And it wasn't necessarily down to any kind of problem, um, you know, with her vice presidency. But um, it, it look, there's a in America, there's a very strong um, um, uh presumption for the incumbent, um, you know, that if incumbents are able to run and they don't have a good reason not to run, they tend to. There's a lot of, of you know, kind of momentum and pressure to do that that's built into the system. And, you know, at the, and, and the, the Democrats have uh, failed, in my view. Um, it's one of my m- main criticisms of them. They have failed to create a line of succession, which they actually needed to do. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the position of the pragmatic position of a lot of Democrats is what we've got is working. Biden is passing major legislation. Mm-hmm. He can get the job done. He knows how Congress works. This is not the time with particularly somebody like Trump wanting to run again with all of the problems that we've got with the divisions between the Republicans and the Democrats and the way the Republicans are wanting to at you know, best, and I'm putting this with uncharacteristic diplomacy, um, to, you know, play the system let's say, or, in, you know, blow up the system um, on other days, um, that, you know, we actually need somebody who's a strong pair of hands and incredibly experienced. So even though, you know, yes, he's old. Yes, it's not exciting. Yes, you want fresh blood. We also need somebody who's going to win. And we need somebody who's going to hold everything together. And he has shown that he can do that. And the final point is that he outperformed expectations in the midterms, which is why you're not True. hearing a lot of resentment and grievance and agitation about Dems in disarray and all of that stuff. Um, and in fact, not only did the Dems outperform in the midterms, but where Biden was stumping outperformed even what the Democrats were doing. So he helped carry Pennsylvania. He he was a, a really big presence in Pennsylvania. It's clear that he actually has a lot more connection with, you know, kind of, you know, ordinary voters, if you like, than, um, than the, the political, you know, chatterati always gives him credit for. Uh, Vincent, is that right there, though, the, the calculus that Biden might be making or should make, that the Democrats' best chance of beating Donald Trump again is basically another old white guy. I think he's completely right in that. I think I spent two weeks uh, at the end of the last election, uh, you know, height of pandemic in kind of Philadelphia and that part of America kind of following the Biden campaign around, but going to places like Scranton, you know, white working class towns that he was really pushing to try and bring back in. And I think Joe Biden can speak to those people in a way that 
that they understand. And I think all the things he's got, you know, the machine of the presidency behind him, so he looks strong. But I think he's been constantly underestimated since day one. One thing that winds me up is that people kind of mock his speech. This is a man that overcame a stammer. And if you've Mm. ever known people that have a stammer, you know, they struggle, you know, Mm -hmm. and and they misspeak slightly, but they're do you know, they're having to work so much harder. I think that tricks people into thinking he's not effective. He's passed major legislation time and again but also the 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 thin attack that they have that you know he's getting too old watch the state of the union that whenever he stands up he disproves that attack he was you know 80 years old standing there for 75 minutes delivering that kind of speech and went off script and in a way owns them when they he felt he set a trap and the republicans fell into it when it came to all right if you don't believe you know they he stood up and said if you're going to sunset medicaid if you're going to get rid of these programs that people have paid into then prove me wrong and they had to all stand and applaud it that was thinking on his feet there is you know i don't think he's slowing down and there is the the issue with Kamala Harris. It's been really interesting because she actually performed really well on the campaign, but she struggled. The, the vice president, you're not meant to eclipse the president, and no, Joe a, Biden it, knows it, it, it is it is the most poisoned of charms. Exactly, and Joe Biden knows exactly how you have to play the role, and she did get a lot of the tasks, the border and things like that, that are tricky to do. Um, that are some of the most complex ones, but I think, and there's been a bit of talk about is she a good boss and some trouble in her office and things. But I I think it's more, it's not, is she not ready because they could have two years to really ramp her up now. I think it's more that Joe Biden, as he keeps saying, he thinks he has a job to finish and Trump is not gone. And it was only four, I mean, it got down to 40,000 votes last time Mm -hmm. in a few key places. Why would you risk it by changing? Well, we should talk and probably as briefly as it deserves to be talked about, uh, Sarah, the other Republican hopeful who has stood up. I mean, that said, people have started from a long way back and come to the front of the field in American presidential contests before. But do we give Nikki Haley the remotest chance of being the Republican nominee for president? I certainly give her a remote chance. Yeah, it's just not it's not out of the question. And look, I think the idea that that Trump that would be a slogan she could campaign. Well, you know, I mean, look, she and I are never going to see eye to eye about anything that matters, but um, the, except maybe beating Donald Trump. That might be the only one. Um, but look, it, first of all, we need to be clear that Donald Trump is not the presumptive Republican nominee. Indeed not. It is simply not the case. That's not what the, any of the numbers are showing. And so even within, you know, definitely within his own party. Um, he's basically neck and neck with DeSantis in Florida right now in terms of Republican voters. But the fact is, is that he was seen very clearly to be a liability in the midterms. They There is a lot of um, feeling on the ground. They can see that, um, that they that he keeps losing them elections. He lost the presidency regardless of what he's always screaming about. Um, he lost re-election. He lost them the midterms. The candidates that he keeps, you know, putting his name behind have a great tendency to lose, mostly because they tend to be completely unqualified and often psychopathic. Um, and, that, you know, those are his people. That's the people he likes. So, um, so look, he loses elections. And and at the, you know, he, he won that one time. He won from a fluke. He, he won, you know, according to a lot of people's perfectly rational lights, probably by cheating in the first place. Certainly the role of Comey, and now we're seeing the, I've just forgotten his name, but the the FBI guy who's just been arrested, McGonagall. Um, and, and so actually there are still real questions about the legitimacy of Trump's win in the first place, not that we need to re-legislate that at this point. But
But the so the idea that Trump is some kind of election winner is the mm. point that has been disproved over and over and over again. And then um, there's just no appetite for bringing him back. They can see what a liability he is, what a problem he is. So the real question is, who is it going to be? Could it be Nikki Haley? She's the first one to, to put her name in the ring. It's possible. I don't think she's the front runner by any stretch of the imagination. But what I will say is that I think that when America elects its first female president, it is highly unlikely to be a woman of color. And it is, at this point anyway, um, at this stage in our politics, highly unlikely to be a left liberal progressive and much more likely that a conservative woman will be the first woman to actually win America. Conservative white woman, I should say. Um, and so in that sense, I think actually, because in Republic, a lot of Republicans want to prove that they're not sexist and that they're not mm. homophobic and that they're not racist. And so there is going to be a certain amount of appetite there to show what they see as kind of progressive credentials. To say, of course, we're ready. Paraded around George Santos before Indeed. they realized that he was speaking, you know? of, speaking yeah. of psychopaths, as yeah, I was. It was. We've got a gay Latino as well. Precisely, was, yeah. precisely, and that's exactly what they like to do. So I could see Nikki Haley rallying um, some troops. And uh, f- a final point is that she is, uh, by all accounts, a very, very effective politician on the ground. So I would say, don't write her off yet. We don't know enough about her yet. Sarah, Sarah and on Vincent, the national scale, I should say. Sarah and Vincent, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both shortly. But now, for obvious reasons. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has had to be careful, quick and quiet about his visits overseas in the last year. Ukraine's first lady, Olena Zelenska, has seen her role accordingly expanded to include foreign diplomacy. At home, meanwhile, her foundation is working not only to help Ukraine through its present difficulties, but to establish a vision for a post-war nation. Well, earlier, with the assistance of an interpreter, I spoke to Nina Gorbachova, director of the Olena Zelenska Foundation. I began by asking about practical examples of things the foundation has been able to help with during the last 12 months. Overall, for Elena Zelenska, it was quite a complicated decision to establish this foundation, but it was also the right one, given the situation that Ukrainians are in right now. The foundation was officially launched in September last year, but the actual work started in the summer of 2022. And the main areas we concentrate on are education, healthcare, and humanitarian assistance. The main priority right now is assistance to the populations of newly deoccupied territories, namely Kharkiv and Kherson and especially those families that evacuated from the frontline territories where the major hostilities are taking place. So right now the foundation actually serves as a means to assist the Ukrainian state services, because right now our social services and critical infrastructure facilities are deteriorating and damaged due to the Russian aggression. And right now they cannot deliver what is required properly, so the foundation is taking the reins when it's able to. For instance, as soon as the Kharkiv region region was occupied, people were facing major challenges, but most grievous was the upcoming winter and the absence of any means of heating or power and electricity. So to tackle this problem, the foundation delivered dozens and dozens of generators, radiators, small stoves, the basic means to provide some heating to those who were most affected by the occupation. For the Kherson region, approximately 40 tons of humanitarian assistance was delivered, those included generators and the like, as well as basic means of health care, etc. The foundation also facilitates family-tied orphanages. These are ordinary families who are ready to take care of approximately four to ten children. 
In Ukraine prior to the war, we had approximately 1,300 family-tied orphanages, but sadly the war has taken its toll because 320 of these orphanages had to evacuate due to close proximity to the front line. So right now the foundation really does a great deal of work to take care of these orphanages and to deliver the basic facilities and goods they need, such as clothing, heating devices, medication, to ensure these basic needs are met. I wanted to ask what you meant by that and whether you see that as a long-term process, whether the foundation has ambitions of continuing beyond the war, which, of course, we hope will end sooner rather than later. The foundation itself is for people, about people and thanks to people, so to speak. And in this respect, humans are really central to the Foundation's activities. And in order to achieve our main goal and to fulfill our main dreams, which is to win this war, in order to restore our country, we first of all should restore and cultivate our own people. This is the main precondition for the victory we all dream of. And right now our main goal is to help the light to prevail over the darkness, violence and aggression. Right now, all Ukrainians are united by one dream, and it's very likely that this is the first time in the history of our independence that we are truly united in one desire. The foundation is a strategic project which will definitely continue its activities after the Ukrainian victory, and it is highly likely that after the Ukrainian victory there will be new challenges and they'll be even more complicated than the ones we face right now. This is a long-term endeavor because a lot of people are either internally displaced or are refugees in European countries. For Elena Zelenska and her foundation, the key goal is for Ukrainians to build their future in Ukraine, to get education in Ukraine, to develop themselves in Ukraine. Of course, the foundation will continue its work with due attention and respect for those Ukrainians who are no longer living in their motherland, but we want to bring our people back. I wanted to ask just finally about the First Lady herself. In in the last year, what's your sense of how her role has changed versus what the traditional role of Ukraine's First Lady has been? Actually, we can all bear witness to how Elena Zelenska is contributing to our victory. And this is a very decisive and diplomatic response, given that we typically see the First Lady as being more about soft power and involvement in softer, non-crucial issues, which are not of the greatest importance. But when you have a war raging in your country and your husband, the president, is the chief of the armed forces, you have to step up when it comes to civilian lives. In fact, Elena Zelenska right now and since the invasion has been capable of reaching out to international audiences and supporting the cause, not just in humanitarian terms, but overall. We all remember when she visited the United States Congress and the UK advocating for Ukrainian interests. So her diplomacy turns out to not be so soft after all. This is not just my opinion. Many Ukrainians are very proud of the First Lady and they recognize the great deal of work she does to advocate for a Ukrainian victory and the Ukrainian position before the international community.
That was Nina Gorbachova, a director of the Olena Zelenska Foundation. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. And finally on today's show, it is obviously the case that standards of deportment in public life are not so stringent as they once were. Indeed, the willfully casual look has in itself become a tool, something politicians deploy to look approachable, the removed tie or purposeful, the rolled up sleeves, or whatever their usually lamentable idea of down with the kids is. A German etiquette society, and sorry to have missed their Christmas do, believes that enough is enough, and that such displays of informality should be verboten, especially among MPs. The Bundestag, in their estimation, is overrun with scruffs. Vincent, do you do you broadly agree with this? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think this is really interesting because in the UK there's been debates about this. Um, the kind of guide for MPs, Erskine May, says uh, members should dress in business-like attire, which is quite vague. Only in the last few years has not wearing a tie for men been deemed accessible. You do normally still have to wear um, a jacket in the chamber if you're a man. Uh, there was trouble a few years ago for it. Uh, one MP as well who wore sort of something that was one-shouldered whilst on the dispatch box. Her name was Tracy Braben. Uh, and she got sort of derided for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you do, if you want to be taken seriously sometimes in public life, you do have to present seriously, in part because you just don't want distractions. Mm. And, you know, when um, when some when someone is trying to speak publicly with authority, if there's something else going on, it just opens up a conversation that doesn't need to be had and it stops people from focusing on the important thing that they're probably trying to say to you. So whilst I don't think you have to be top-hatted and everything else in public life, I do think that you should, <laughs> you know, if you're there representing people, you should make the effort to be presentable. I mean, uh, Sarah, this is obviously uh, different for uh, female politicians and, and we will get onto that. But I was, I was just wondering as well, um, we were speaking earlier about Barack Obama and I'm not going to invoke uh, tan suit gate. <laughs> Uh, but but I am also struck by something I remember reading that he'd said not so much about, and it, it ties into what Vincent was saying about it being a distraction. Uh, he said it was a distraction for him as well, which is why he basically wore more or less exactly the same thing every day he was president, because, as he said, it was just one decision I didn't have to make that day. <laughs> exactly, and I, I think that's really important, right? And I absolutely agree that it is about, you know, clothes are still a way that we send all kinds of signals socially, mm. culturally. That's what they're partly what they're for, at least what fashion is for any 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 notion of style once you get beyond you know basic comfort and staying warm and stuff like that um, and so I think that you know yes women entering public life is part of what has actually forced the um, the, the the expansion of those boundaries um, because women were not going to say I'm going to have to wear a suit and tie in order to be taken seriously so you know women now wearing dresses as a version of business attire but you mm. know when I was growing up women were in suits and that was what they tried to do power suits right in the 80s with big shoulder pads and stuff so that they would be taken seriously. And I remember all of these things about women should wear red so that they get taken seriously because it's the power color and all of this stuff, right? And so, you know, certainly... A red suit from a male politician would be a bold move. But this is the thing, right? So you think about, you know... um, uh, and this is all just about common sense and 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 um, and in my view anyway and and a, and a modicum of good taste right so and but it's also understanding that all of these things are functionally costumes and so mm. you know we just heard from uh, or about anyway um, Madame Zelensky and what has Zelensky been doing since he's been at war he has only been seen in combat fatigues people are are you know commenting on that because he's at war and he is signaling mm. that his country is at war and that he's not a statesman he's a military leader right and and everybody understands what that means they have their different views about why he should be whether he should be doing it but everybody 
everybody can can interpret it very, very clearly. Or you have somebody in your country, this country, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, right? Who you spoke <laughs> about top hats. There's somebody who thinks that everybody should be in a top hat, but he's just cosplaying, right? I mean, he's cosplaying an 18th century politician. So, and that's equally distracting and equally silly. And so, at, and you know, and, and I, we were talking about American politicians a second ago. The young generation of Republicans are coming in, particularly the women, um, are coming in in clothes that many, many people find totally inappropriate for, for wearing. Green Marjorie came Taylor Green playing as Carla Deville. The she other day. sure did. Everybody just said, "Where are the spots from her to yeah. Dalmatian?" Exactly. In this, but also, you know, um, Kristen Sinema was there uh, in a in a denim cutoff, you know, sleeveless kind of vest. Um, you know, it, 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 and she was presiding, I think, in the chamber mm. that day. So the sense that. It's about mutual respect. It's about the seriousness, not just of, you know, taking yourself seriously, but taking the role seriously, taking the position seriously, and therefore taking your voters seriously, that you care enough to actually put on some decent clothes and and to say this is a job and I'm taking it seriously. And I, I think people unconsciously or consciously take in all of those messages. And, and ultimately, it does matter because you feel that it is... Because we still tell stories with our clothes and we feel that it is disrespectful when people are working for them not to indicate that they are working. And also the the environment where you most people see a politician is on a television. Mm-hmm. That is the medium and the environment they're in. Every other person you see every other day on television has thought about their wardrobe or someone's thought it for them. They've had their hair and makeup professionally done. That is the standard that the public sees on TV. And when a politician is constantly slotted in and out of that, thrown from a news presenter maybe who will have been made up and there is a dress code applied there, they kind of have to fit that environment. Otherwise, they stand out. And believe me, like as a reporter on TV, I get a fraction of what I know female colleagues get. I get people messaging me all the time to say things like, you shouldn't wear that tie, it's horrible on air, <laughs> that coat's terrible, all these things. Like, it's a weird thing where because you're on TV, people somehow think that they can just say, judge you on the appearance be- and, and the visual appearance quickly, and they'll tell you. And mm. I think it is because that's the environment that they're in. If they don't do it, it'll mainly stand out. People won't listen to what they say, and it's a distraction. And you, as well, when it comes to some politicians like Jeremy Corbyn, who continuously looks scruffy as the leader of the Labour Party, even at quite solemn events like um, uh, uh, Armistice Day and all that kind of stuff, it, it opened up an attack that wh- why leave yourself open to you know gifting your opposition uh, a way to come at you, which you know many people will somewhat agree with, that you should just try and make an effort. But just a final thought, Vincent, as as an observer of UK politics in particular, which does seem peculiarly prone to this, would adherence to the kind of grown-up dress code that we are talking about spare us all the, well, dubious pleasures of politicians attempting to look cool? <laughs> because because it, it does get attempted from time to time, and it rarely goes well. It rarely, I mean, recently we've had the example of Rishi Sunak turning up to, uh, I think it was a building site in his campaign in Prada Loafer. Uh, <laughs> see, see I, I kind of admired that. <laughs> I mean, mm, bold choice. Uh, uh, Vincent McAvenny and Sarah Churchwell, thank you both very much for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>